Hey, let me ask you a question. How many of you, just show show of hands, have ever heard of Dr. John Faustus? Yep, that's about what I thought. Okay, good. Yep, good. All right, let me explain who Dr. John Faustus was. Okay, so he's uh, not a real person. Faustus actually is the main character in a play that was uh, first uh, produced in 1604 in Germany. By, uh, it was written by somebody named Christopher Marlowe. Marlowe actually took a compilation of lots of different stories that were circulating around in the time, popular stories uh, about this guy, Faustus, turned it all into one play, and then that play just exploded in popularity. The original title of this play, I think you'll appreciate this, is The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus. That's a good name for a play. Uh, it also sounds like a Fallout Boy album song, uh, title. Um, so, so because it's a long, because it's a, a long title, most people just refer to it as Faustus. Uh, so John Faustus was a medical doctor. He wanted to heal everybody. He wanted to fix all the problems, and every single time somebody came in, he wanted to have a solution, be the hero, and he was frustrated because he had limitations. His limitations were medical science. He, he just couldn't save everybody and fix every single problem, and he had all these issues and questions that he couldn't resolve, and so what he did was he made a deal with the devil, and the deal with the devil that he made was that he was going to have superior knowledge and ultimate power. And the devil said, I will give you superior knowledge and ultimate power for 24 years. And he said, deal, I'll take it for 24 years. Faustus then became like a superhero in the medical field. In fact, he was he acted like he was a magician, just going around, he had all this knowledge and he could just do all of these things. He had all of this power for 24 years, and what do you think happened at the end of 24 years? The devil shows back up and asks for his due. Uh, the, the, the play ends with Faustus in damnation. He, the, the price for 24 years of superpowers was his soul. So Faustus actually serves as a warning against pride and sinful ambition. And this was, this was a, a popular play in the 1600s, and for many years after that, in fact, it was turned into books. It was the storyline and the themes of Faustus was adopted for books and plays of all sorts and movies and TV shows, and, and, and it was so popular that there actually was a term that was coined. When you, were, when you would say something or somebody is Faustian, what you were saying was that that person has sold their soul for pride and sin, sinful ambition in order to have power. So you would say someone is Faustian. They weren't a hero in that story. And what you were also saying is the devil's going to get his due. Eventually, that's going to come back around, and it won't end well for that person. Interesting, uh, when you ask a group of people, like, say, in Lancaster in a congregation on a Sunday morning, hey, what do you know about Dr. John Faustus? Uh, most people have no idea what you're talking about. This play has fallen out of popularity. We do not know what the story of Faustus is all about. Uh, it's just a little-known term anymore. Eugene Peterson actually explains why in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. 
He writes, the legend of Faustus, useful for so long in pointing out the folly of a God-defying pride, now is practically unrecognizable because the assumptions of our whole society, our educational models, our economic expectations, and even our popular religion are Faustian. It is difficult to recognize pride as a sin when it is held up on every side as a virtue, urged as profitable and rewarded as an achievement. What is described in scripture as the basic sin, the sin of taking things into your own hands, being your own God, grabbing what there is while you can get it, is now described as basic wisdom. This was written about 20 years, 30 years ago, by the way. It sounds like it was written yesterday, doesn't it? Peterson wraps up his thought by, by saying this. This is what it sounds like. We, we say, improve yourself by whatever means you are able. Get ahead regardless of the price. Take care of me first. For a limited time, it works. But at the end, the devil has his due. There is damnation. See, pride and sinful ambition are celebrated in today's culture. This is why no one wants to go see a play about John Faustus. Because they'll be confused when he loses at the end. Because the world actually encourages this kind of living, right? We praise people for pushing their way to the top. The millennial and Gen Z generations, their greatest sins are rooted in entitlement. And who raised them? Sorry. We have a culture and a generation that believes that self-promotion is actually noble. But in the end, like all sins, pride and selfish ambition will result in the loss of our souls. Now, before I go any further, we're going to talk about what we're talking about. I'm going to tell you what we're talking about today in just a second. But I do want to just make one point of clarity. Um, ambition and self-development are not inherently sinful. I just want to make that clear. I'm not about to preach a sermon to you that says ambition equals sin. The sin actually comes in when we leave God out of our development. This is where we have a problem. Uh, the sin comes in when we take pride in our wealth or power or position, or when we compare ourselves to others in order to make ourselves look and feel better than others, or when we use our pride or our power, our position or our wealth uh, to abuse or to disenfranchise other people. So is ambition inherently bad? No. Be ambitious. Ambition led me to go to college three times. I have a doctorate degree because of ambition. Uh, I, ambition led us to plant a church in 2011. You're sitting in the fruit of ambition. A ambition led me to ask a girl to be my girlfriend when I was 15 years old. And then I got on my knee uh, when I was 18 and said, you should be my wife. And 20 years later, I'm thankful that ambition did that. Ambition's not bad if God is involved, if God leads it. The, the problem is that, that we are selfish in our ambition or prideful in our ambition. So, so ambition leads to a multitude of wonderful blessings if God is the one leading our desires. We live in a world that is addicted to ambition, that is self-driven that is addicted to pride. Thankfully, there's a, 
an antidote to that. And in, as we've been walking through this series on spiritual disciplines, I want to present to you a discipline today called submission. And we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of submission today and how it is a solution to a culture that tells you to drive for your own success at the cost of others or to, to shape your life so that you are comfortable even if it means others lose out. Adele Calhoun, who we quote often in this series, uh, wrote a book called the, spiritual, uh, the Handbook of Spiritual Disciplines. She actually helps us see how submission works against our negative or sinful ambitions when she writes, submission that leads to growth means aligning my will and freedom with God's will and freedom. God's will for us includes freely submitting to each other out of love and reverence for Christ. And Richard Foster, who wrote a book called The Celebration of Discipline, he, he actually writes that submission produces freedom when he says that submission gives us the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our way. In fact, if I could sum up what submission as a spiritual discipline is, it would be that sentence right there. That submission is the thing that produces, it is the discipline that produces the freedom from always needing to get our way. This morning during worship, I was reminded of the Lord's Prayer. I've just been having the Lord's Prayer come back to me and as a framework for my prayer, uh, especially recently, uh, as it seems like there's so many things going on in the world, I'm not always sure what I should pray. And so the Lord just reminds me, hey, I taught you how to pray. Just pray through the Lord's Prayer. And what does it say in the Lord's Prayer? It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed, or may your name be kept holy. And then what's the next line? Anybody know? Your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. This is the discipline of submission in prayer form. Your will be done. Not my will be done. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. See, submission produces a kind of humbleness in us uh, as, as we willingly lay down our pride. It says, God, you get to have your say, your will be done, not mine. And so today, what we want to do is we study the discipline, of, the, the discipline of submission. I want to look at three relationships where you should apply submission, or three arenas, maybe, if you will, where you should practice the discipline of submission. But I want you to understand, submission has an order to it. So we have to start at the beginning, and then we'll build from there. The foundational place where we engage submission is, number one, submission to God. Submission to God echoes the words of the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 8, where it says, I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. Friends, submission does not just mean to simply do God's will as if it is a chore. Submission means that we delight in God's will. Uh, there's a story that is uh, kind of a... a inside joke for a couple of friends of ours, Mark and, and Deb. You, you know Pastor Mark, and Deb runs our kids' ministry. And uh, and they actually have this story that, that years ago in their marriage, Mark was sitting on the couch and watching uh, a basketball game or something. Uh, and, and Deb said, hey, Mark, do you want to take out the trash for me? 
And Mark from the couch sarcastically said, more than anything in the world. And that's a great picture of a husband who doesn't really delight in doing the will of his wife. And so now for years and years in their marriage, uh, any time that one of them asks the other to do something, they sarcastically go, I'd like to do that more than anything in the world. And they do love each other, just for the record, and they do serve each other really, really well, and they have a great marriage. But it's, a, it's a, actually a really good illustration. It's a good question for me. How many times does God ask me to do something? Go, how do you feel like doing that, son? And I sarcastically respond back to God, more than anything in the world. Or maybe not sarcastically at all. I'm just honest with God and go, no, God, I'd actually rather not do that. Thank you very much. I wonder how many times God has asked me to do something or asked you to do something that your response has been something other than what the psalmist portrays here. God, your word is deep in my heart and your will, I I delight to do your will. This is the starting place of submission to God. The Apostle John showed us what submission sounds like when he was preparing the way for the Messiah. He's out, he's out there preparing the way, and in John 3, verse 30, it says, He, the Messiah, must increase, but I must decrease. This is the heartbeat of the person who is submitted to God. I say, God, I, I want to decrease so that you will be made popular through my life. I don't need a platform. You increase. I will decrease. And submission is actually lived out as we honor Paul's instructions in Romans chapter 12. At the very beginning of chapter 12 of the book of Romans, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is how you worship God. Do we worship God in songs, in singing with a band leading us in music? Yes, absolutely. We worship and praise God in that way. But what does God call the ultimate worship? Our singing is meaningless if it's not also married to the kind of worship that looks like you lay your life down for him. To delight in doing God's will instead of building a relationship with God that says, God, I've married my soul to you. Now I'd really like you to answer all my prayers and you can do my will. Thank you very much. And I know that sounds wildly heretical, but I'm guilty. And maybe, friends, you have done this as well, where you've come to God in prayer and said, in the name of Jesus, this is what you're going to do for me today, God. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't bring God your petitions and your requests and you shouldn't declare things in the name of Jesus. We're a Pentecostal bunch. We absolutely declare things in the name of Jesus. And we've seen God respond to our declarations in the name of Jesus. We've seen miracles in this church. But the beginning place of our submission to God is us submitting to his will, not demanding that he submits to ours. Right? God will answer the radical declarative prayers of a person who is submitted to him, not one who comes demanding. What's what's interesting to me is we think about how submission lays down our entire life as an act of worship to God and and lays down our will to delight in doing God's will. What's interesting is is that the secular world is, is actually perfectly fine with the idea of God being in charge. Just wonderful. Absolutely love it. In this context, as pastor and professor James Dunn once said, everybody wants a theocracy, but the problem is that everyone wants to be Theo. Like, you're fine being God, is, right? Like, you're, you're totally fine with that. Let God run the show. I'm God. Submission says there is a God, 
and you're not him. Right? There absolutely is a God. It's not you. Look at your neighbor for a second and say, it's not you. Okay, good. Now, just, just so you know, some of us have the type of personality in the room where we go, oh, thank God I'm not God. Whoo, that would be terrible. And some of you are like me, where you need to be regularly reminded that you're not God because you secretly are in love with power. Right? So this is a good practice for us. How do we functionally, how do we pray and declare and remind ourselves uh, to do the discipline of submission? Well, on a regular basis, I go, Father in heaven, your name be kept holy. Not mine, because I'm, I'm not God. It's a good reminder for people like me, right? See, Christian submission not only claims that there is not a God, it declares that I am not him. And we know that we are practicing the discipline of submission to God when we ask questions like, why am I doing what I do? Well, think about your life for a second. Think about your job, think about your family, think about where you live, think about uh, like what, what do you do for a living, uh, all of that. If you're a student, why are you going to school? Uh, what's the purpose of that? Why do you do what you do? If you can say that uh, what, what, what I do is driven by prayer, scripture reading, Christian counsel, and a sense or, or, or a direction of, of, of purpose from God, then congratulations, you're living a life submitted to God. But if, if on the other hand, you say that you're driven, your decisions are driven by emotion or a desire for power, for recognition, or for money or comfort, then it may be that your life is geared toward self-worship instead of submission to God. And by the way, these questions, that question, why do I do what I do, comes into play when, it, when we ask about, uh, should I take this job? I have plenty of people as a pastor come and say, hey, will you pray for me? I've got a job opportunity. And my number one question that I always want to encourage people to ask is, are you going to take that job because God told you that that's the next season of ministry for you? Or are you going to take that job because the money is good? And see, when we ask that question, what we're actually asking is, who gets to be God of this decision? Your wallet or your God? Right? And so this is the discipline of submission in functionality. How do you decide stuff? Who is the ultimate decider of your life? I was talking to my brother, uh, and I've been having this running conversation with my brother for years, ever since he moved to Maryland. He goes, did you know you live in California? You could move to Maryland? He goes, if you move to Maryland, we'll buy like this beautiful house. You have it built just to your specifications. It'll be way cheaper. Gas is cheaper. He just randomly like takes pictures of the gas prices in Maryland and sends them to me because he's a punk. <laughs> Look at how cheap it is to live in this state. It's wonderful. He'll send me pictures of the temperature in the middle of summer. So rude. Pictures of snow and go, do you know what this is? This is a I'm being verbally abused by my older brother is what I'm trying to tell you. But, but it's interesting. My response to my brother when that conversation gets serious is always this. I'm not the decider of where I live and what I do for a living. I don't decide that. I, my life is at the submission and service of God's plan and purpose for me. I happen to very much love living where I live and doing what I get to do. But 
God decided that I get to live here and that I get to do what I do. Can you say the same? If you can, you're living in submission to God. And there's great blessing in that. If not, friends, I encourage you to change who gets to decide things about your life. Remember what happened to Faustus at the end. He got to decide, but then he had to pay the price. So, uh, let me give you a quick word about wise Christian counseling. How do we get that? Now, this does not mean that you have to go pay for a therapist. Wise Christian, you probably should, but that's not what this means. Okay, wise Christian counsel comes from people who themselves are submitted to God, who have a proven track record of Christian faithfulness. Not people who are like brand new baby Christians, right? Don't get your wise Christian counsel from non-Christians or people who got saved last week. They just don't know yet. Uh, Wise Christian counsel comes from people who know the word of God and are able to give advice based on scripture. If you go and ask a person for wise Christian counsel and they reference six books before the Bible or tell you about the podcast that they listen to and don't reference the holy scriptures that were written to advise your life, that's not wise Christian counsel. They might be accidentally right every now and then. But that's not wise Christian counsel. I would further say that wise Christian counsel comes from people who are filled with the Spirit of God, baptized in the Holy Spirit, so that they can hear the right now word of God on your behalf. So, if you find that you want to be in submission to God, but your heart is pulled by all kinds of other desires, welcome to earth. (laughs) And a good prayer to recite, uh, if you want to come back, bring your heart back to submission to God, can be found in Psalm 131. I'll read it to you from the message translation. It says, God, I am not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart. Like a baby is content for its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. If you would just come back to this psalm and just say, God, where this is true, thank you for sustaining my faith in you. And where this is not true, bring me into the reality of this prayer. I want to live in submission to God. This is the sort of thing that we pray until it's true in the places where it's not. So the discipline of submission begins with submission to God. And then we can expand from there, right? We can expand from a baseline of saying, I delight to do God's will, to now going to our second point of the day, which is that we have to understand what it looks like to practice the discipline of submission to authority. Now, we'll try to move relatively quickly through this, but there are two specific arenas where this kind of submission to authority is applied. Number one would be to spiritual authority. These are those people who are charged by God to lead you spiritually, like pastors in your life. So the author of Hebrews tells us what submission looks like for these kinds of authority figures. In Hebrews 13, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this, this watching over your souls, with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, don't make it hard to be a spiritual leader for you. How do you make it hard to be a spiritual leader for you when you get advice from Scripture? You don't do it. That makes it really hard to to be a joy-filled spiritual leader for you, right? 
Have you ever heard somebody say to you, man, I, I want to stop giving you advice because you never do the thing that I say that you should do, right? When you find a spiritual leader whose advice comes to you from the holy word of God, do the thing so that the next time they see you, they can go, oh, what a blessing it was to share the word of God with you because you went and did what God said. There was a young man who uh, I was talking to at the Bible college, really just struggling, and he was at the point where he's just like, you know what, I, I'm just going to give up. And he, he was like one class from graduated. And so I sat down with him, and he just wanted to talk it out. And, and to be honest, he wanted to complain it out, and, and he wanted to give me all the reasons why he wasn't going to graduate, and he was, he was justifying it. He goes, I'm already doing ministry. I don't really need the degree. It's just a piece of paper. And I said, you dope. You just did four years, and you spent all of this money, and you're going to stop right before the finish line? I said, do the thing. Do the thing. And then we opened scripture and we looked at faithfulness. And we looked at people who endure. And people who do what they say that they would do. And I just began to give him examples and, and encouragement from the word of God. I began to tell him what I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying through me to him right now in that moment. And he goes, yeah, okay, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. And I just went away and I just prayed for him. It was just a couple days ago. He sent me a text. He goes, I'm going to finish it. Yeah, I'm so proud of this guy. You know what's going to happen the next time I see him? I'm going to be so full of joy to see this young man who finished. Not because not of anything I said, but because the Lord got a hold of his heart and he, he was obedient. He did the thing God told him to do. Now, look, I, I want you to notice from Hebrews 13, notice the goal of spiritual authority. It is not so that leaders can dictate what you can and cannot do. That's where submission and authority gets all weird and messed up and abusive. We're not doing that. Biblical authority is not about telling you what you can and cannot do. It's about cultivating your heart in partnership with the Holy Spirit so that your leaders can give an account of your soul to God. Do you realize what this means? That if I'm your pastor, I'm going to have to stand before God about you one day. Please, make that a good day. <laughs> the spiritual leaders are responsible to bring you closer to God so that when we stand before God and give an account to, of the souls that we were charged to lead, it's a good report that we can give. Okay, so let's talk then about secular authority because we, uh, we have to go to work tomorrow and figure out what to do there. But Peter tells us what to do in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperors as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Now, notice who makes it on the list of authority figures that we should submit to. Every human authority. Every, every human, we really want to say Christian there, but it says human authority. But I didn't vote for them. But I have feelings about that group of people. Well, Peter and Jesus don't seem to care. Submit to every human authority. This covers your boss, whether you think they're good at it being your boss or not. This covers law enforcement. This covers political leaders, and the list would go on. 
Actually, Paul goes even further. You think Peter was unkind to you? Listen to what Paul has to say. Listen, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to to good conduct, but a terror to bad conduct. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. See, Paul does not tell us only to submit to the leaders that we like or the ones that we think are doing a good job, but to submit to all authority figures. So the question that comes up when we talk about this, inevitably, if you haven't already thought about it yourself, I'll tell you the question that will come up if you reference authority, submission to authority, like police officers and politicians. Someone will ask the question, is it ever okay as a Christian to not submit? Maybe you heard this question in 2020 or 2021. Am I making this up? Like we've asked this question a lot, right? Okay, you wanna know the answer? Is it ever okay for Christians to not submit to authority? Yes, yes, under a very particular set of circumstances. If that authority figure is leading you to sin, then you are not obligated to obey. Okay, so this is where we touch some some nerves and step on some toes, and you go, well, what if I don't want to do the thing that they, well, is doing the thing that they want you to do sinful? No, I just don't want to do it. Okay, so you get to then choose whether or not you're going to be a submitted person. But I don't want to do it. Okay, now you sound like a five-year-old. But I don't want to wear the mask. Now you sound like a five-year-old. But I don't want to do the thing. I don't want to keep my opinions to myself. Submit to who? All authority, under what circumstances, that they're doing anything that does not lead you to sin. You understand it? Are you comfortable with it? Does it matter? In fact, I propose to you that where this is uncomfortable is the purpose of the discipline. Why? Because it reminds me that this is this story is not about my comfort or my will. The, the function of, of the spiritual discipline of submission is about not having to have my own way. It is actually good for me, catch this, to have leaders who do things that I don't necessarily like or agree with that aren't outside of God's standard for holy and righteous living. Why is it good for me for leaders to do things that I don't like? 
that aren't necessarily sinful because it reminds me that I'm not in charge of my life. It becomes a metaphor for God being in charge of my life. I don't enjoy paying taxes. Brother. I don't, I don't enjoy it. It's, it's not like when the tax bill comes in, I don't go, oh, Sharon, thank God. Let's throw a party today. We get to pay our taxes today. Yes, love it. Of course you don't. Why is it good for you? Because it reminds you that there is something greater than you caring for your life. Let it be a metaphor. Let it be a metaphor. Let it be a picture of the way God cares for you. And yes, even God will ask you to do things that you don't like. And we thank him for it. Amen? Okay. So again, the simple answer, when an authority figure leads us to sin, we are not obligated to submit. But if it's not sinful, you submit because this honors God. Remember what Paul said, therefore you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. So now, if you cannot bring yourself to submit, not because it's a sinful thing, but just because you don't want to, then Paul says you have an issue with your conscience. Take that up with God. That's what he would say, right? Amen? Okay, so. All right, let's move forward. So we practice submission to authority when we lay down our need to be in charge. I feel like I need to be the one calling the shots for my entire life. I lay down my need to be in charge. And I resist the urge to protest against leaders that are not breaking biblical holiness. That can be hard for some of us, but it is good. And finally, we practice submission to one another. To one another. Look around at your neighbor, the one that you told wasn't God earlier. You're supposed to submit to them. Okay, so we've seen how we submit to authority. Now, now I want you to look at actually what Paul says to people who are in authority. So we, we, we've heard how we treat authority figures. Here's what Paul, or Peter rather, in 1 Peter 5, says to people in authority. He says, I exhort the elders among you. This is what he says. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, so to, to those who are following, he says, Make, live in such a way that the people who lead you are full of joy that they get to lead you. And to the people who are leading, he says, don't be a jerk in the way that you lead. Lead not out of compulsion, like, oh, i got to lead these people today. Lead out of joy, out of, out, of, out of eagerness. Not because you get paid to do it because of the benefits, but because it's an honor to do it. And then he says, in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So el to elders, to leaders, he says, act like servants. And to the younger people, the people who follow, serve, follow, submit. And then he continues. In verse 5, he says, all of you. Say all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, you need to hear this. A distinctive of Christian leadership and authority is and has always been 
that our leaders are submitted to the people they lead. Not lording over, but coming underneath the people that they lead. So as the pastor of this church, if I am your pastor, what that means is I have a position of spiritual authority in your life. But spiritual authority looks more like servitude than dominance. We get it wrong when we flip the script and say, well, don't touch the Lord's anointed means that you have to do everything I tell you to do. That, my friends, is called spiritual abuse. Spiritual authority comes underneath and serves the people of God, right? This is why why Jesus looks at the disciples who asked for a holy high seat right next to the hand of Jesus and go, you don't know the cost of what you're asking for, right? You want to be the first in the kingdom? Get at the back of the line. You want to be the head? Serve everybody else. Right? There's a, there's a popular uh, book about leadership and taking uh, extreme authority or, or, or extreme responsibility and ownership over all of the things that happen in the organization. It's written by a guy named Jocko Willenick, who served in the Marines. Excellent, excellent book, if you can uh, cross out all the cuss words. Um, I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying there's stuff in there that's good. Okay. In there, he goes on and on and on about how you have to take ownership of where you are leading. And he says, if you want to be in charge, you have to serve everybody else. And he says this one thing over and over and over again in this book. And he uses it as a a mantra. And there's even been other books written around this one idea. It's this one phrase, leaders eat last. Leaders eat last. The principle is you are serving everybody else. And this is what it's like in the kingdom of God. If you want to have any kind of authority, you serve everybody else. Why? Because it's an honor to do it. Because you're serving God's people. Right? That's what leadership should look like. This is what Peter is saying. This is what Jesus would say. The point of this is that the discipline of submission actually has very little to do with a person's position. We don't submit to authority because I'm the pastor. We submit one to another because we're children of the Most High God. See, we are actually called into a kingdom of brothers and sisters with one king. When the aim of this kingdom is relationship, the currency of this kingdom is love, and the structure of this kingdom is mutual submission. Dallas Willard put it this way in the celebration of the disciplines, or the spirit of the disciplines, rather. Uh, He wrote, the highest level of fellowship involving humility, complete honesty, transparency, and at times confession and restitution. The highest level of fellowship is sustained by the discipline of submission. The way of Jesus knows no submission outside of the context of mutual submission of all to all. Not all of you to me, but all of us to each other. The Apostle Paul makes it plain and simple. In Ephesians 5.21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We don't submit to one another out of hierarchy and structure and order and, and out of fear that we'll be abused if we step out of line. We submit to one another because we are equally submitted to Jesus, the King of Kings. We practice mutual submission when we do what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Let me read that last bit again. In humility 
Consider others, pause, think about some others for a second. Some others that you like, hopefully the people you're sitting next to. Now think of some others that you don't like. <sighs> In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interest of others. Could you imagine living in a community that looks like that? Before looking to have your needs met, you look to meet somebody else's need. And then they, in turn, before looking to have their needs met, meet your needs. Friends, that's called the church. This is how we should function. Mutual submission is the structure of the New Testament church. This is what Jesus had in mind. Right? You absolutely cannot be self-centered or proud or sinfully ambitious and also be mutually submitted to one another. You can't. It removes all of it. It's a good practice for me to look at Kyle and say, Kyle, I'm thinking of you as more important than me. And Kyle will go, Tim, I look at you as being more important than me. And what's, what's actually profound about all of that is that I look at Kyle and say, Kyle, you're more important than me. And if you don't feel the same way, I still think you're more important than me. And I'm still going to be mutually submitted to you even if you don't return the favor. Why? Because I'm a son of the Most High God, and so are you, and that's what matters. It's, it doesn't have to be reciprocated in order for you to do it. By the way, I just fixed your marriage. I just fixed your marriage. You're welcome. I did that for free right? Well, I'll love him as soon as he starts. I, no, I just fixed your marriage. I just fixed it. Well, I'll do the chores as soon as she, no, stop. I just fixed it. It's over. It's done. It's repaired. You're welcome. Mutual submission is the structure of the kingdom of God. And you, you are the pillars that hold up the church as you are mutually submitted to one another. I know I reference Richard Foster in this series a ton, but he wrote like the pivotal book on, on dis spiritual disciplines. And he writes about the freedom that is found in mutual submission. The, it, it's, I mean, it's so good. It, it's almost as if he's, he's writing like this, this manifesto for spiritual disciplines, and here's what the discipline of submission looks like, and it's practically like living in heaven right now. He says, in submission, we are at last free to value other people. Notice that submission undoes the bondage. He, he would name pride and selfish ambition as a form of bondage. In submission, we are at last free to value other people. Their dreams and plans become important to us. We have entered into a new, wonderful, glorious freedom, the freedom to give up our own rights for the good of others. He calls that a freedom, like it's a privilege and a benefit to lay your life down for the benefit of somebody else. For the first time, we can love people unconditionally. We can give up the right to demand that they return our love. No longer do we feel that we have to be treated in a certain way. And he closes this thought out like this beautifully. He says, we discover that it is far better to serve our neighbor than to have our own way. And this freedom would be extended to everybody. 
right? Mutual submission leads to loving our neighbors as well as our enemies. It, it leads to caring for the poor, and it, it leads to standing for the rights of the oppressed. All of this is a function of us being mutually submitted to one another because we see one another as real human beings who are deserving of love and have high value in the eyes of God. We practice mutual submission when we allow other people to mentor, disciple, teach, correct, and guide our lives. And when we look for opportunities to serve other people and then actually do it, regardless of how they respond, we actually do the thing. Ultimately, submission is absolutely about power and ambition. Not in the getting of it, but in the laying it down. It is, it is consumed with it in laying down hierarchy and power and ambition and pride. Sadly, as you know, we live in a world that is bound up by a Faustian spirit. We're encouraged to be sinfully ambitious, to be prideful, to to be hungry for influence. That's the popular new thing, to be an influencer and to have power. But the discipline of submission invites us to detox from our addiction to pride and sinful ambition, to detox from the need to have our own way. And In and, and fact, for, for all that the world tells us to chase after the good life, to build it for ourselves, the only discipline, the, o- the only discipline that actually produces that kind of culture as a promise is the discipline of submission. In fact, I'll, I'll read it to you in Psalm 133 as we come to a close. It says, how wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. In other translations, it might say, how good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like costly anointing oil flowing down head and beard, flowing down Aaron's beard, flowing down the collar of his priestly robes. It's like the dew on Mount Hermon flowing down the slopes of Zion. These are pictures of of the the leaders in the church, the, the heads of the church, the priests having anointing oil poured all over their head and that oil pouring all the way down over the entire body. This is a, an allusion to the future picture that Jesus would come to create a church that is referred to as the body of Christ and Jesus being the head of the church, the anointing flowing from the head all the way down over the body if we live together in unity. Yes, that's where God commands the blessing and ordains eternal life. Submission going in every single direction, up and around to all of the people, down to those that we lead as well. Mutual submission produces a culture of unity. And rather than us striving to create the good life, God, it says, commands the blessing on our lives. Commands it. Meaning you can't get away from the blessing. He commands the blessing if you live in unity. We spend all of this energy striving to create the good life. 
at the expense of other people missing out. And God says, if you would live in unity and look out for their benefit, I'll command blessing on you. That's a promise, friends. Submission begins with God, includes those who have authority over us, and it extends out ultimately to every other person. So if you were to do a few things this week, if you were to practice the discipline of submission this week, here's, here's a couple of things that you could do beginning today. I would encourage you to think of people who have authority over you immediately. If you have a boss, think about your boss. If you're in school, think about your teacher, right? Uh, think about the people who have authority over you. And this week, pray a blessing over them. I didn't ask if you mean it. Just pray a blessing over them. God bless their life. Bless the work of their hands. Bless their bank account. Bless their family. Bless their home. Give them peace. Help them to honor you in their work. Pray a blessing over them. Then here's, a, here's another thing that you could do. Look for ways that you can serve somebody else without expecting anything in return. Look for ways, this week, could you find one way that you could serve one other person without expecting anything in return? Uh, it might be as simple as just, you know, buy somebody a, a, a meal, a cup of coffee. Just bless somebody. Or you know that somebody has some kind of physical need. Go and meet that physical need. Don't expect anything in return. Just submit your life to be a blessing to theirs. Here's another thing that you could do this week. If you have a mentor, think about who your mentor is, somebody who pours down into your life right now. Pray for them this week. Reach out to them and say, hey, can we get the next thing on the calendar so that we can spend some time together so I can learn from you. Pray a blessing for your mentor. If you don't have a mentor, this is what you would do. God, show me somebody who's further along in their journey than I am. And give me the courage to just go ask them to teach me something. By the way, that person doesn't have to be older than you to be a mentor. They just need to be further along in a specific area than you are. So there's no such thing as being too old to have a mentor. No such thing. The only way you don't need a mentor is if you stopped breathing. So far, everybody needs a mentor. Okay? So this week, reach out to somebody who's poured into your life. Thank them. Ask them for more of their time. Or ask God to show you who you can be mentored by. Why? Because the discipline of coming under the wisdom of another person is a way that we practice the discipline of submission, which reminds us that ultimately we are submitted to God. And then the last thing that we're going to do here today. I told you at the beginning of this service, or the beginning of the message, that I was going to ask you to think of one thing that stood out to you in all of this talk today. And then to turn to a neighbor and share that with them. And then I'm going to ask you to pray for one another. So over the next couple of moments, I just want to ask you to do this simple thing. Will you turn to at least one other person and say, today, here's what I remember and what stood out to me from what Tim was saying. Or here's what God was saying to me while Tim was talking. And just share that. And then as you hear that, pray for the person who says that to you and just say, God, I pray that they would live into what you have told them today from your word. Thank you, Lord. And friends, as we come to the end of this time, I pray this blessing over your life as you go from here in the name of Jesus out into the world. May all of your efforts to gain power be frustrated and utterly unsatisfying. May you find joy and freedom in submission to God, to your leaders, and to everyone else. As you live in unity with others, and as God commands his blessing over your life, 
May you be blessed and may you be a blessing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen.